Good morning, coach. We're here on Wednesday, August the 19th. We're back for another episode of Better Than I Found It. How are you doing today? Doing great, Mikel. I appreciate you uh, getting up early to help me record this. Yeah. Um, it's been an exciting week for golf. Uh, we've watched a lot of the U.S. Amateur. Um, you have any thoughts on, on what transpired over there? Well, it was an exciting final, that was for sure. And actually, the semifinals were pretty pretty amazing, too. But I want to point out the fact that we did have a player make match play, and that was Travis McEnroe. He shot a couple of really great rounds and finished fourth in the stroke play portion out of, out of over 260 players. And then he did lose his first round match, but he played great this week. It was really nice to see a Baylor Bear there in match play. It was great. We had four other guys who actually made the championship as well. That was Colin Cober, Cooper Dossey, Ryan Greider, and Johnny Kiefer. So we were well represented there, and the championship itself was very exciting, and I thought the, the golf course, course showed well. Yeah, the final was really exciting, and um, I watched some of it with Tyler Strafacci winning there for Georgia Tech. They've, they've won two in a row now. And that was just a really cool interview, I thought, after he won, and he kind of praised his dad. and Really cool moment to, to see that. Ollie Osborne from SMU. Finished runner-up. Very exciting match and great for college golf, I think, overall. Yes, and then also we had uh, a really special thing happen up in Norman, Oklahoma, just a couple of days ago in the one of those GCAA amateur events, actually the first one. Uh, Brandon Hoff fired a nine under par, 63, course record at Jimmy Austin Golf Course in Norman, Oklahoma. Um, he had 10 birdies, only one bogey. Birdied the last hole with about a 16-foot putt, buried it. Uh, that was a great final round. And he was a little bit in the, kind of in the middle of the pack going into the final round, but he did finish fifth. So that was a great, great way to come into the school year with a course record. And if you want to see the final putt of that round, I think it was about a 15-footer that he held and a little nice fist pump. That was. It's on our uh, Baylor Men's Golf Instagram page. Yeah, so go is. over there and look at that. Proud of him as well. Uh, well, we're back here. We're at the Baylor Williams uh, practice facility on campus and we have a lot of our guys in town actually but we haven't seen them yet have we <laughs> no no this, uh, this pandemic which i'm going to talk a little bit about later has got us in a quarantine so they're going to spend a seven-day quarantine before they can kind of come out and start actually you know participating in team activities so uh, hopefully they've got a lot to i know they have putting mats and hitting nets in their apartments so they're, they're going to do as much as they can uh, with the, the pandemic quarantine yep well we're excited that they're back and um so for this podcast episode we don't have a guest but coach you've prepared some thoughts uh, that you want to share with the listeners today a little bit of a topic episode i guess we'll call it and it kind of relates to the guys being back um, for school, doesn't it? It does. You know, uh, we're going to start classes next Monday. And so that will initiate the beginning of, of learning in a formal sense for the school year. So we, we do that every year and they do it on every campus across the country. So learning will begin to take place in a formal way in a classroom. Uh, some of them may be online, but but the formal learning of an education will be taking place. And really that got me to thinking with that taking place and the, some of the kids are freshmen, so that's brand new to them. And some of the guys are seniors, they're coming back for the fourth or fifth year. But it, it got me to thinking about the learning stage that I've been in for the last, oh, probably seven years. And 
it's probably been the greatest learning stage of my career. Well, it has been the greatest learning stage of my career. And it's been in my mid to late 50s and early 60s that I've been able to do this. And it actually started when I was let go at Oklahoma State. And we talked about that a couple of podcasts ago about uh, getting fired at Oklahoma State and, and finally going to Alabama and then ending up here at Baylor. But I don't want to rehash that story. That's not what it's about. But what should have been the lowest point of my coaching career actually was a rebirth. And it was it was a start of something really great. Uh, I believe a rebirth in two ways. One was in enthusiasm. Uh, and I spent a year with Jay Sewell. And it's impossible not to be a little bit enthused about life and about golf and about college golf when you spend a year with, with Jay. Every single day was a lot of fun. He and I laughed and joked and we cried and we just had an amazing year together. But he kind of reintroduced me to the enthusiastic young coach that I once was. So I spent a year kind of doing that. And then when I was fortunate enough to get the job here at, at Baylor, I had already started a process that I called Stuff That Works. And so I started writing this journal in Alabama, uh, along with getting all that enthusiasm back. I wanted to kind of start thinking what have I learned in coaching through the years? What do I know? What do I think is knowledge that I possess that I know? And, but how can I take it and keep on learning? So basically it was, okay, I need to identify things I think are true and right and that I've learned in coaching because I'd been coaching over 25 years at that time. And then uh, open up the door for a new learning stage. And so the, that stuff that works journal was in, I combined that with, in this time, so this seven years, I counted last night in my bookshelves, I've read 63 books on leadership, toughness, grit, culture, coaching biographies. I've been reading. Now, I know a lot of people read, and probably a ton of people read more than I do, but all of those books were, were meant to learn something about coaching. And here I was in my late 50s and early 60s. So, I combined the Stuff That Works journals where I was literally documenting things I'd learned through my career with a, an upscale amount of reading that I had not been doing before. Uh, and while I think that's great to read, I also think it's important to journal what you're experiencing. So I started doing that even more so than I had before. So basically, that's a, in a nutshell, seven years of on a daily basis learning, reading, growing, and I've just been in a growth stage for seven years. But those journals, uh, I think people know that you're famous for your journaling. And so you've always journaled throughout your coaching career, haven't you? I have, yeah. But the stuff that works, when you came to Baylor my senior year, you showed me this book, and that was the start of really better than I found it a little bit too, wasn't it? It was. Uh, I didn't mean it. I didn't know I was going to write a book, but I did know that I was trying to identify what I was learning and what I had learned and what made sense and what I was going to... I knew I wanted to reinvent myself as a coach here at Baylor. I didn't have any reason to say that uh, I think I know all this. This is the way it's going to be. But, and that's the only way it's going to be. It was like, this is what I believe now. And then let's learn from there. So it started a uh, remember, I was 54 when I got the job at Baylor, so I was 53 when I got let go and started those journals, uh, the Stuff That Works journals. I think that for me, it was speaking to myself. I was a veteran coach already, and 
I wanted to kind of be able to speak to other veteran coaches if they had a question. It's like, there's a lot of things you have to be careful at when you, when you are a veteran coach because mm-hmm. it's very easy to get in cruise control. I don't know if you've ever been to cruise control as a young 28-year-old. I doubt it. I'm too young for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but when, you, when you're a, a veteran, you think, well, I've got these things figured out, so sure. I'm just kind of cruising right through this. And the truth is, uh, I saw a lot of my colleagues over the last 20 years, um, well, in the time that I've been in college coaching, about 25 years, um, that were in cruise control. And you knew it and you could see it and they weren't recruiting as hard as they were, were before. Everything was better in the old days. They just, I mean, to them, it was like, why are these young kids changing everything? Why are they? And you know what? That's human nature, I think. Mm-hmm. But when I was in this learning stage, and I knew it was very obvious to me I had to be in the learning stage, the cruise control mentality had to leave. I had to feel like I was a young 25-year-old kid just getting going again. And so that's kind of why all of this felt right to me. You know, that old saying, you can't teach a dog, old dog new tricks. I think that's so wrong mm-hmm. uh, because I've learned a lot since I've been here at Baylor. But so that mentality of Cruise control was gone immediately, and and I'd probably been in cruise the last few years at Oklahoma State. How, if I can peel that back one yep. more layer, so how do you think that kind of uh, manifests itself in you in the kind of cruise control mentality that you're talking about at Oklahoma State? Why weren't you doing as good a job of as you should have? Well, developing young players, because I had a lot of really great players at that time, and some of those guys turned pro early, and, you know, mm-hmm. When a first-team All-American College Player of the Year turns pro, that leaves a big hole. And you either hopefully fill that hole with a guy you recruited, and I missed on a couple of years in a row, I missed on a bunch of good players. Uh, And if you don't have that, you better have somebody you've been developing. So I I was in cruise control and thinking we were just going to be good. And we were. Mm -hmm. But once those players started graduating, matriculating out of campus, turning pro, whatever it is, we we had nobody to fill. And so... We had some people to fill, but I wasn't doing a good enough job of developing players. And we had a bunch of young, talented kids that were hungry, but we just didn't do a good enough job of developing them. So I think cruise control is dangerous for anybody because you, uh, you know, success has a way of making you think you can't mess up or fail, but man, you can. And that's kind of where I was. So is that also a little bit of the reason why you try to limit your roster size now? 100 percent yeah because it the every time you add somebody to your roster you spread yourself and your assistant coach and your resources and the golf course where you play and your practice area it's all stretches thinner mm. and i want to give 100 percent of me as much as i can to every player on the team and when i add a player it needs to make sense because i'm adding somebody that i am responsible to help and coach and motivate and challenge and push and whatever and so when the team got really big at the end at Oklahoma State it was another reason I wasn't able to spend time developing the younger ones so I just knew at Baylor I was never going to be in cruise control and that included so much as you know we went out and raised about 6.7 million dollars to go build a practice facility well I didn't have to do that we had a practice facility it was about 25 minutes from campus but we had one and so you know Jay Goble and I really kind of just thought this needs to happen if we're going to compete with the best teams in the country or even the best teams in the Big 12. We have to have something on campus. So that was a non-cruise control mentality. You know, Mm -hmm. we went out and did that. Um, Changing a recruiting philosophy of actually 
recruiting very hard in Texas, knowing I was going to get my nose bloodied in some recruiting battles. That was going to happen. Mm-hmm. But I, it was okay. I had to do that. That's not cruise control. I could have gone and just taken an easier route. But cruise control is a dangerous place to be. Don't want to be there. Don't think I'm there today at 60. And pretty sure. Yeah, I can <laughs> I, I can definitely attest to no cruise control here. Yeah. Where it's 825 and I just rolled up because I have a son to take yeah. to daycare and whatnot. And you're on hour, what, four in the office just now? In the ballpark. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I get going pretty Yeah, early. I can definitely attest to that. Well, and there another thing I wanted to talk to veteran coaches about was uh, the know-it-all mentality, just because I have experience. I mean, I've got 35 years of coaching experience, so I know something. And if I don't, something's wrong. I do know something. But to think that I know it all and, Mikkel, you as the assistant coach must listen to everything I say – it's kind of dangerous too, because then I stop learning. When I know it all, I have stopped learning. That's a fact. I mean, honestly, I'm speaking this morning on this podcast. I'm not doing that much learning. The only learning I'm doing is when you interject your thoughts and your. Then I do some learning. But when I'm talking, I'm not learning. I'm just telling people what I think I know. Mm-hmm. So uh, know-it-all mentality is to me is just as dangerous as being on cruise control because you're not doing anything if you know it all. You're just, look at me, look what I know. So I know what I know what I know right now, but I better know, I better know more tomorrow or even this afternoon than I know right now. Yeah. I guess that's easy to fall into too with, you do have 35 years, uh, but that includes three national championships. It includes all these guys on the PJ tour. But um, I do think you're, very, very humble for, I don't know, just the experience you have and also just the knowledge and, and what you've seen in your well, profession. Thank you, Mikhail. And that actually leads into my next point. Uh, the players on the tour, the current players we have or whatever, it's pretty easy to see and look on uh, a platform. Okay, these players are playing the tour. These players are doing this and, and try to take credit for it. Mm-hmm. And it happens a lot. But the truth is uh, those players taught me as well. So if if I look back at the players that I've coached, I think the I'm the expert mentality, so the player learned everything from me, is a horribly arrogant place to be. It's not a good spot. For one, if if all I'm able to do is teach them and they're not able to teach me, then that's a one-way street. And it isn't one way. It, it, I actually can learn from my players. It doesn't go one direction. And so, I mean, I can even talk about a lot of opportunities to do that here at Baylor since I've been here. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's always happened, but I didn't know this mentality until I started growing as a 54 to 60-year-old coach. It was like it occurred to me. So uh, the, a couple things I want to say is, one, I probably have for years, whatever my team captain did, I was still driving the, the bus, if you will, and the team captain sort of helped me have a pulse on what the team was doing or whatever, but I didn't give him enough autonomy or ownership of the team. And so I think a couple of years ago when we knew that Colin Cobra and Cooper Dossie were going to be senior team captains, Ryan Blagg and I, my assistant coach at the time, Ryan, we decided we need to coach these guys up a little bit and start talking to them about how leadership works and how they could lead the team. And so we gave them some more uh, responsibility. We actually allowed them to create team practices do some things like that. Um, I think it's helped our team because I've 
relinquished a little bit of the control and said, Colin, Cooper, what do you guys think? How would you do this practice? What are some good ideas? And by doing that, uh, we've actually gotten better. And you haven't experienced it yet because you just got here to Baylor. But I know Ryan Blagg thought it was a great idea. And uh, it, it means you kind of have to step back. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kyle Jones, just in that last podcast that I said when he signed his glove, I mean, he taught me more about how somebody can own their own game right then. I'd never thought about it that way. But it's like Kyle owns his own game. And it may not look like you want it to look or like conventional wisdom would say Kyle Jones's golf swing needs to look or whatever, but he's playing the tour and he's winning and he's a very, very successful professional golfer doing it his way. Well, I wasn't even thinking about it. He taught me that. Um, you taught me something in that first year I was at Baylor. Do you remember what you came into my office and what I, something I still use today? Do you remember what it was? Mm, is this about Olympia Fields or no? Well, actually, Olympia Fields was pretty... That was a learning. You taught me about eight or ten things that year. Um, oh, yeah. I do know what you... What is it? The the stats that I used? Yeah, the stat he used. He You used a stat called Embedded Shots, and it was basically a precision stat for driving, and it measured how... Uh, how well you actually hit the ball compared to where you wanted to hit it, not just if you hit a fairway or not. Yeah, and this is before strokes gained was was uh, common knowledge and all that. And so it was to put a value on your missed drives yeah. to where you don't just count fairways hit and fairways yeah. missed. I've used that ever since. And actually, if I take your stat and kind of mirror it with strokes gained or uh, driving, uh, it's actually pretty much the same thing. It's just a different number, yeah. but it's the same thing. And you figured that out. You taught me that. I've been using it ever since, and I love it, and it's an easy stat to keep. Um, one of the things I did since I got to Baylor was uh, tournament summaries. I tried to start it at Alabama, and we did it a couple of times when I was an assistant coach. But truly learning from the player what he just learned at the tournament and then having by him writing what he turning points in the round, things he did well, things he didn't do well. He could include some statistics, whatever it is. But these tournament summaries I've taken very seriously because I think I can learn a lot more about a player when he's telling me what he thinks. And if I happen to walk with the player at the tournament, well, I've got my perspective too, so we can discuss it. But it makes post-tournament meetings with an individual player a lot more valuable. And that's something I didn't do before. But it's been huge for me because I'm learning about how I can help a player progress based upon what actually happens to him in a tournament. So that's been good. But one of the most important things that I've learned at Baylor from players, and all those things right there are things I learned from players or an assistant coach, was a meeting I had the day after we got back from the NCAA championship in 2018. So we had just had a team that I felt like should make match play. At Karsten Creek. And we finished 30th. That's dead last at the national championship. And on the way back, I um, I told Ryan Blagg, I said, you know what, we need we need these individual meetings that we're gonna have the next two days. We need these to mean something more than they've meant in the past. We need those guys to help us be better coaches. They need to tell us where we're failing. They need to tell us where we're falling short. And because normally when you do an end of the year meeting, I mean, it's pretty standard. What do you do? You you bring him in and say, Johnny, here's where you were in August. Here's kind of the way the school year went and your tournaments and your results. Here's where I think you are today. 
So here's the things I think you need to do over the summer to come back in August a better player. And you mm-hmm. check off that box, you send that boy out of the room, and you bring in the next one. Yeah. Do you know, you know where I'm going? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, and we, it's like I'd been doing those meetings for years, but I decided after we played so poorly, I knew there were some problems on the team. I didn't know what they were, but I knew if we just had a check-off-the-box mentality, that I wasn't going to learn anything from those meetings. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> So I told Ryan, I said, Colin's the first meeting, Colin Cober. He's the first meeting. And I can't tell you exactly how it's going to go, Ryan, but I can tell you this, it's going to be different. So I, I sit, Colin sat down in the, in the deal, and Colin was a really, really talented kid from, from uh, South Lake, Texas, who had finished his second year at Baylor and hadn't played well. And he was our substitute at the national championship, so he didn't even get to play at nationals. So he's my first meeting. And I knew... Colin wasn't happy at the time. I knew he wasn't just loving his experience at Baylor. It wasn't perfect. Um, but I hadn't done much to do anything about it. So I thought, well, okay, this meeting's going to provide <laughs> some clarity. We're gonna, he and I are going to have some, uh, some open moments here. And so I, I started the meeting with this. I said, Colin, um, I bet you think this meeting is going to be similar to last year's end-of-the-year meeting. And Colin, who's probably one of the most intelligent kids that I've ever coached in 35 years. You could tell he was looking at me trying to think, well, what does he want out of this? He didn't say anything. I said, well, you, you, you want to know what I'm trying to get at? He said, yes, sir. I said, well, um, I want this meeting to be open and honest. So here's the ground rules for this meeting between you and me today. I want you to tell me anything you want to today, as long as you're respectful. And I'll be respectful to you. But as long as you're respectful, you can tell me anything. Tell me how I'm failing you. Tell me how the program's not doing well. Tell me how we could change practices. Tell me this. Tell me that. You tell me everything about this situation right now. And you have complete immunity, as long as you're respectful, because I need to hear it. And, and Colin, I'm going to tell you the same about you. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're going to do during this meeting. And so Colin, being the really intelligent kid, he hadn't said anything yet. You can, you can just see those wheels turning in his head. And I'm sure he's thinking to himself, is this a trap? <laughs> is he trying to trap me into saying something? And I said, well, Colin, you obviously don't have much to say. Do you want me to start? And he said, oh, that'd be, that'd be really good. So I started, and I started my conversation. I told him everything I felt like, where he was, why he was, where I thought he could do better, whatever. And then we start exchanging sort of punches back and forth for about 30 minutes. And he was able to say a few things that he wanted to say, but I could tell he was still holding back. Mm-hmm. And here I've got the smartest kid I've ever coached probably, and he hasn't really given me everything. And, and it's tough to get a f- true evaluation from a kid who still has eligibility. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's hard. Why is that hard? Yeah, I mean, you have some sort of control over him, I guess. Oh, yeah. You know, he, who, who goes on the bus? That's yeah. your call. And he, he, he's not, but I said, Colin, I appreciate everything you said so far, but I think you're holding back. And he said, well, yeah, the truth is I probably am. And I said, well, don't worry about it, Colin. Just tell me. It's okay as long as you're respectful. We've been respectful to each other so far, so just do that and tell me where you where, where I'm, where, what's on your mind? So you're 30 minutes in and, and you're getting to this point. Yeah, I'm finally getting to this point after 30 minutes. And he goes, well, coach, you know, Baylor was never on my radar. And then you start, you followed me one day at a junior tournament right before my junior year. And uh, then you start writing letters. And 
I still wasn't interested in Baylor at all. And finally, you called me up one day. No, you didn't call me. You asked me, yeah, you in an email, you said, will you please call me? I would like to arrange for a time for you to come down and visit. And this is when you could still take official visits or unofficial visits anytime. But it was his junior year, so it was okay anyway. But So he came on that visit, and he's telling me this story. He said, I came on that visit, and I told my mom when I got back home, Mom, you need to come down on the next time. I, I think I, there's some things about this that I like. And so I came back down on the next visit, and on that visit, you promised me three things. Do you remember what those are, Coach? And I said, yeah, Colin, I, I do. I, re- I, I tell everybody that. Every recruit hears that. He said the first thing he promised me was that if I came to Baylor, I'd get a degree. Now, we both know I'm probably going to get my degree here at Baylor. That's not an issue. You promised me that if my dream was to play the PGA Tour, that you couldn't make me a PGA Tour player. You said no one can do that, but you could push me closer to my dream. And he said, I'm not sure if I'm closer to my dream of playing the PGA Tour because I haven't played very well. But that's on me, too. Part of that's on me because I haven't I haven't done what I'm supposed to do to get to be better. But the third promise, Coach, you failed. He said, do you know what that promise is? And I said, yeah, of course I do. And he said, the third promise you made was whatever love I had for the game of golf coming into college whatever love I, how much I love playing the game. When I spent four years with you, coach, that I would love the game that much or more when I left campus. And I got to tell you, coach, this spring, I did not enjoy practice. I didn't enjoy workouts. I didn't enjoy coming to team meetings. I didn't even enjoy traveling with the team. I didn't enjoy being around you. I didn't like anything about this experience. Now you can imagine me sitting there across the table. He was respectful about it, but he just told me the truth. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, Colin, a couple things. One, we all can control whatever our our influences are around us. We can still control what we think and feel. I mean, you're a, a big boy. You should be able to. So I'm not going to take 100% of that. But the fact is, you are correct. I knew you were unhappy. I knew you weren't enjoying golf. I knew you weren't passionate about it anymore. And I did nothing about it. But that ends right here, Colin. From this day forward, you and I are going to work on your love for the game of golf. And I don't know what it's going to look like, but I promise you, I'm going to remake that promise that you will enjoy golf and love golf and be passionate about it when you leave here. And if the truth be known, I've never told Colin this, even to this day. Uh, Going into that meeting, there was a part of me, a very small percentage, but a part of me that thought Colin may be coming in here today to tell me he wants to leave. Mm -hmm. Because that's how aware I was that he was unhappy. Mm -hmm. Now, he did an amazing job at Karsten Creek as a sixth man, knowing he probably wasn't going to play as a substitute. He was the best cheerleader I've seen. He was amazing. And he told me in that meeting, he was very intentional about being a good cheerleader, being a good teammate. Doing He was unhappy about it because he wanted to play. But the truth is, I was aware he was unhappy, and I didn't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And here I finally got to a point where a kid told me the truth in a meeting. That was a big thing he taught me right there. And he taught me that I can't go on cruise control with just thinking, kids, everything's fine. I've got to pay attention to it. And I knew this instinctively that he was having a rough time. Well, Collins had two really great years at Baylor, and so much so that he decided to take advantage of a COVID fifth year 
and he's going to be back as a team captain with Cooper Dossie again this year. So Colin Cobra, a player, taught me a lot that day, and I'm open to my players teaching me. So coaches, don't ever get in a mentality your player can't teach you. He gets one or two coaches, depending upon if the school has an assistant coach. We get 10 to 12 of them mm-hmm. every year. So, Mikael, you're getting ready to have 12 coaches mm-hmm. here, in, here in a week when we get to start with the guys. So that's one of the mentalities that I've learned during this learning stage is players can teach you as much as you can teach them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's awesome because that was probably your 33rd end-of-the-year meeting. Mm-hmm. And it, it is so easy to just do the same thing because uh, you have the time for the kid and you, you go through the same deal and you make them better on paper. But that's uh, an awesome story of kind of digging deeper and going another step to really learn from the kid and, and really get to know the kid. Well, what was interesting was he wasn't having a good experience, particularly. I mean, he was unhappy. But I got him to a point where he was open enough to be honest with me. And he took that opportunity. I mean, some coaches, that's going to be, and it was for me too. You think I wanted to hear that? You think that was enjoyable for me? No. The same way a kid doesn't want to hear criticism or instruction or whatever if if it's going to hurt to hear it. But you have to. So I think a coach, whether he's a veteran or a young coach like you, You've got 12 guys that have the potential to help you this year. Now, your job is to coach them as well as you can, but For sure. But they, they have a chance to help you. So that's one thing I've learned in this seven-year learning stage. Yeah. One other thing I've learned is uh, my way or the highway mentality. I, I'm telling you, back in the days of Bear Bryant, Vince Lombardi, or whatever, kids weren't as sophisticated then. Even a professional football player playing for Vince Lombardi was not as sophisticated as they are today. So they know more today. They're more aware of things today. And my way or the highway does not work. And my way, whatever it is right now, even the things we're talking about in this podcast, these better develop and evolve and change a little bit over the next five to ten years. Or something about this must change. If it doesn't, that means that I thought I had the answer and that was it. I have the answer as I know it today, the same way surgeons and scientists have answers today based upon scientific knowledge that we understand today. But something they were doing 50 years ago in surgery is barbaric compared to what they're doing now. So 50 years from now, can you imagine what they're going to be doing? Well, that's what I want to do with the coaching profession. Mm-hmm. I, I want 50 years from now, it's like these guys are a great group of people College golf coaches are amazing what they can do. My way, the highway does not work because it, it's basically this is it and no other answers. Yeah, that's sort of like uh, this COVID environment where we've had all these Zoom meetings and, you know, you've obviously hired a 28-year-old. You can do most of these things yourself, but it does happen from time to time where I need to run into Coach McGraw's office and <laughs> figure out that your Zoom button on your email is wrong or whatever. But if you were the mire the highway, the my way or the highway mentality, then um, it'd be kind of like that fax machine out there. That's the only technology help I've had to ask Coach McGraw for. (laughs) Fax machines are not modern day. In two and a half uh, months, I had some medical records. Then you go somewhere when we moved and. Coach McGraw, you had to help me with the fax machine. I wasn't up to date on that. You're welcome. You're welcome. But you know that gets to my next point, which is. we said we could learn from our players. 
what we learn from our assistant coaches as well. Um, it's pretty easy to think, well, I, you know, I've been coaching 35 years. You've been coaching four. Yep. So what do you know? Well, you might know a lot more than me. And uh, Barry Henson, who's a, a basketball coach at Oklahoma State University, a great guy. If you met Barry Henson, you'd, you'd want to go have lunch with him immediately. Just such a great personality but an inspiring coach as well. And he once was quoted as saying, if you're the smartest guy in the room, you need to get another room. Mm -hmm. And I remember him saying that, and I thought to myself, what does he mean by that? What he's meaning is hire people around you that are smarter than you. Hire people around you that are more creative thinkers than you. Hire Because basically, I've got the baggage of 35 years of this is what it looks like. Mm -hmm. You've got a fresher, newer look at coaching. Ryan Black had the same thing before he left to go to Louisville. He, he was amazing, but, but the beauty of it is is you're 27 when you got here. He was 40 when he left, and uh, that's 13 or 14 years right in there. Of uh, You're even fresher and newer to the game than he is, so he needs to hire a young, you know, somebody that's really going to, you know, that's what I'm saying is, the point is I'm trying to make is I'm, I plan on learning from you, and if you don't plan on teaching me, shame on you. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, yeah, I, I respect that. That's real cool. I like that. Um, the final thing that um, that I think that I've learned over this seven-year period that has been valuable for me has been vulnerability. I always knew what the word meant, but that was just a dictionary definition of the word. Now I truly understand what being vulnerable. My wife, Pam, will occasionally tell me that I overuse vulnerability, that it's too much a part of you know, too humble, too whatever. And the truth is, um, yeah, I'd rather err on that side than on the side of arrogance, on the side of I know everything. If I'm vulnerable, then a player can teach me. If I'm vulnerable, then an assistant coach can teach me. If I'm vulnerable, a competitor, a guy I'm trying to whip his tail at a golf tournament, he might learn something. You learned something from a, a coach, a really high respect, highly respected Division One coach here recently, um, that you told me a story about. Who's that? <laughs> <laughs> Matt Thurman. Oh, yeah. Matt Thurman, Arizona State, a wonderful coach, a great coach. And you, we won't go into all the details, but go ahead. You think about the minimum line? Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've, uh, I pick up things from all sorts of coaches, but Matt Thurman is another coach I really respect, obviously. And he was uh, teaching me how he thinks about goal setting for his players. And... Um, you know, every player that he has, most of them come in with the same goal of playing the PGA Tour. They want to win in college. They want to be All-Americans. But what he taught me is what he truly tries to figure out in recruiting and also with the kids on his team is what's their true minimum line. And as a coach, you probably have a good sense of what the true minimum line for your player is, um, you know, the way they speak about around, if if it's a recruit you're talking to, you know, if you ask them how was your tournament, and they they might say, "Well, um, I played really good, but messed up a couple places and shot seventy four, and and uh, but I'm playing good and and I'm feeling good." <clears throat> to Matt Thurman, he told me, you know, that tells you something about that kid that he was okay with shooting a seventy four, and his best players, he said. They wouldn't be okay with, with shooting a 74. Um, you know, some of your best players that are first-team All-Americans, there's it's very few of them that would have said prior to the season, 
um, I'm okay with just being an All-American this year or, or getting at that. They would have been really upset if they didn't, if they weren't one of the best players in the in the country. And so um, I thought that was a really interesting perspective. And you pick up stuff like that from all other, all, all sorts of coaches in the and country. And you're a 27-year-old when you learn that. Yeah. And it's, but my point with this sort of podcast today is that it's very, it's it's much more noted or easier. It's much easier for a 27 year old to be vulnerable and open. I'm learning. I'm listening. I'm asking questions. Sure. But a guy my age, we're not so inclined to do that. You yeah. know, I learned from Matt Thurman. He's he's taught me a lot through the years. I still learn from him, and it's great that you had that. But I have to be vulnerable enough to know that a he's a 40 year old or whatever he is. He can teach me a 60 year old. Without mm-hmm. any question, and, and a competitor, and a competitor. Whereas I'm young and yeah. I'm, you know, inexperienced, so it's easy for me to take that role. But yeah. for you, that's that's tougher. And that's what I'm telling. It's tougher. You should do it. Yeah. And it's part of your learning stage too. But here I am at a learning stage right now. I want people to uh, pour into me things that I can learn and make me better. And and part of that is I may be 60 years old right now. There's no question in my mind if done right. If I keep this attitude, if I stay in the learning stage, if I stay there, I'll be better at 70 than I am at 60. Now, I know my body won't be. I was telling you about some arthritis pain this morning. Yeah. It's not perfect, that part of it. But why shouldn't you be a better coach at 70 than you are at 60? Because conventional wisdom tells you otherwise. Mm-hmm. It tells you that, oh, you're not supposed to be able to, your skills are diminishing. You're not going to be as good as you used to be. Well, no, if you think that and believe that, you won't. But... I'm not going to stop learning until the day they ask me to leave, and then I'll just go find someplace else to keep learning. <laughs> I mean, that's the way I plan on doing it. I want to stay in this growth stage. It's a healthy, it's a, an exciting, it's a vibrant, it's an organic place to be, if mm-hmm. you will. And so kind of want to tie this up with talking about where we are right now in the world. We're in the middle of the only pandemic that I can remember really being affecting our lives, and So our guys are having to quarantine this week. That's unusual. Our fall season is either going to be altered or we won't have it at all. Some fall seasons have already been canceled. I mean, we just got a lot going on right here, right now. You just changed jobs right into a pandemic. Yeah. So, um, but I, I look at it and I think right now I've got to be better than I was before. So I need to learn better ways to teach guys when I'm going to have to be a little socially distant. I'm going to have to. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to learn different and better ways to inspire them. Because right now, inspire hope in them for sure. Right now, a lot of guys that are in college, this I didn't sign up for this. This is not what I hoped for or believed was going to happen. So I've got to do a better job as a coach. You do as well. we got 12 guys. We need every day for them to have hope and excitement and be thriving through this mm-hmm. every day. And if that if we can do that, that's going to be a great learning experience for us because we can see how our players handle it. And then this is the I've never had a better platform as a coach to teach facing adversity. So if you don't think they're going to be watching you and I this year mm-hmm. about how we handle this pandemic, they're going to be watching. So um, although I know we have some very challenging times ahead, I'm, I'm excited to see what I'm going to learn through this. So once again, this is just another part of that learning stage. Yeah, right? 100%. Well, um, we appreciate you taking the time, Coach, to prepare this message. This is something you wanted to share on the podcast, and there will be episodes like this in the future as well. So uh, I maybe want just the listeners to know that 
you've actually prepared this and thought about this for days because you want the message to be uh, well spoken and well thought out. And so I just appreciate you taking that time to, to do that and sharing it with the listeners. I know a lot of people will appreciate it. And also, likewise, we appreciate the listeners so far. The feedback has been incredible and um, it just makes it uh, worthwhile for us and especially for you as you try and find a platform to share with other coaches to where you can help them as well. Well, thank you, Mikel, for you know even coming up with this idea. I probably wouldn't have uh, come up with the idea of wanting to do this, but it's been healthy for me to kind of revisit some of these thoughts. And um, yeah, look forward to the next time. I, we have a really special guest coming up the next time. I can't wait. Uh, I won't announce it right now, but we've got a good guest next week. Absolutely. And uh, if you guys have any feedback, questions, you know, get with us. Uh, we'd love to take your questions on the podcast um, in a kind of Q&A format at some point. So keep, uh, keep giving us feedback and questions and uh, stay tuned for the next ones. Thank you for listening.